0: I'll turn again through this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter ten. And we'll read verses seventeen through thirty one. good except God alone you know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery do not steal, do not bear false witness do not defraud, honor your father and mother and said to him teacher I have kept all these things from my youth up looking at him Jesus felt a love for him and said to him one thing you lack. go and sell all you possess, give to the poor you have treasure in heaven and come follow me but these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving. for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him we, him, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake, and for the gospel's sake, but that you will receive a hundred times as much, now in the present age, houses, brothers and sisters, and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This account is remembered as that of the rich young ruler. It's not because he's called that here in Mark's Gospel, but um Luke's account tells us uh, that he was a ruler of some sort. Matthew's account tells us he was young. And the story itself makes it obvious he was rich. So this guy had a lot going for him. Uh, he's remembered as a rich, young ruler. Uh, verse 17 tells us that he runs up and kneels before Jesus and makes a request. An earnest, honest, good question he asks Jesus, um, he seemed to have respect and, and genuine eagerness to learn from Jesus um, and, and understood, right, there. there's no more important question than what he asks. But there's a couple of things that I want you to notice about this passage before we uh, move into the outline on your in there. Uh, first is that Jesus never answers this man's question directly. Um he seems to know the man is misguided in his understanding and his motives and uh, needs to understand discipleship better. What we'll see of this man is that he has this desire for a promise of God, genuinely it seems, but without the desire for God himself, the desire for Jesus, to follow Jesus. And so Jesus tests him on that and he ends up leaving sad, uh, not sure that what Jesus requests is worth it to him second thing I want you to notice is that we're not told the the ultimate outcome for this young man. Um, Initially, of course, he he doesn't take up Jesus' offer, and he leaves. uh, We don't know ultimately what he decides, whether he comes and follows Jesus Um, again. But that's something that we come to often in the Gospels is an account that that is sort of left open uh, the end of it. We don't know what this person's decision is after his um, confrontation or interaction with Jesus. And I think in in those cases, it's intentional that the reader, you and I, uh, consider what our response is. We're supposed to consider that, put ourselves in the story in that sense. So here's what I want you to think about that this morning. What what is it that you want from Jesus? Why do you come and kneel before Jesus at your Lord? What do you want? What do you ask? Of Jesus. Uh, Just two points on on the outline this morning that this account shows us two things Jesus calls for in his discipleship. The first is love and devotion to himself, and then uh, dependence on himself. Uh, Very closely related. So, first, Jesus calls for comprehensive love and devotion. Notice that in answering this rich young ruler, Jesus lists some of the Ten Commandments for him. Um, As if to say, well, you want you want eternal life? Well, here's where you start, right? By, by following God, obeying God, uh, doing what He says. And the man responds in verse 20. We'll come back to this, teacher. I've kept all these things from my youth up. I've I've done all that. Uh, check. Uh, and so Jesus responds in verse 21. Okay, there's there's one thing then that you're still lacking. You lack, go and sell all you possess, give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You see the irony in what Jesus is saying, how he's answering the man's question. What's what's one thing, one more thing I have to do, or one more thing I have to add? Maybe you've had the experience of applying for a job that you uh, are interviewing for a job and you didn't get it. Uh, I've had that experience a number of times, and you might look back and, and wish. Just one, this one other thing I could have had on my resume, one other experience. Um, That's kind of how the rich young ruler is coming to Jesus. Jesus, I've done it all. Is is there one more thing I can add? One more hoop to jump through? One more thing to do uh, to really? And and Jesus, in answering, is not giving him one more thing to do, one more thing to add. He says one more thing you lack. But really, he's he's saying, are you willing to give up all that you have? Are you willing to lack? Uh, Are you willing and ready to devote your life, all that you have, to me? What he lacks is that uh, devotion and and, um, lacking, in in a sense. Is your understanding of eternal life worth that Jesus challenges him? Will you love and devote yourself to me above everything else? And what's the man's response? Of course, it says he went away sad. He went away grieving. Because he had a lot of stuff. It was part of the man, him. On the surface, thinking about this man's confidence, on the surface, God's law can look like a list of rules and behaviors. Right? A checklist for us to do. That's how this man is thinking about obeying God. What's God's summary? What's the Bible's summary of God's law? How does Jesus summarize it? Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And that's what Jesus tests this man on. Uh, and a simple request that he makes of this man, though it's a, a significant um, a thing, and that simple one request, uh, he, he summarizes and tests the man on the summary of God's law. Essentially asks him, do you love me? You, you say you've done all this your whole life, but do you love me? Do you love me with your whole heart? He's, he's kept a lot in some sense his whole life. And yet in a moment, he's shown to have never really kept the life of God at all, without love for Jesus himself. So this man has a couple of barriers to really understanding discipleship, understanding Jesus' teaching, and one of them, a major theme of this whole passage that we read this morning, is his wealth. Again, verse 22, he went away grieving because he owned much property. And Jesus reiterates a major lesson of this, of this whole scene, this passage, with his disciples immediately after. They're, they're reflecting on what just happened. And Jesus says how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God.
1: And, and, read, and, and
0: again, verse 24, uh, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So he's emphasizing how hard it is in general. Uh, but it's, there, there's something especially hard for those who are rich to understand the kingdom of God. And then he illustrates that in verse 25. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you kids can imagine a camel going through the eye of a needle. If you don't know what an eye of a needle is, it's a very tiny, tiny little hole. Right? Because this sounds so ridiculous, various um, people throughout history of trying to soften or explain Jesus' words differently. So one of those attempts is, well, the the word for camel is really similar to rope, so Jesus probably meant to say rope. And it's still, you know, be very hard to pull a rope through the eye of a needle, but it's a little more imaginable than, than pulling a camel through the eye of the needle. Right? And other such to that will be, the eye of the needle refers to the gold door on the outside of the wall of the city. And a um, camel would have to you know, get on the ground and kneel and, and scoot through to, to even possibly make it through. Uh, there's, there's no historical record of sending such uh, sure Jesus means to say camel, I mean, I am kneel. He means to make a ridiculous point to show that it's impossible. Um, that, that's confirmed with the disciples' response in verse 26. Then who can be saved? They understood Jesus to say this is impossible. And then Jesus confirms it himself, should we have any doubt, verse 27? With people, it is impossible. Right? Um, And again, he's saying that for people in general, but especially for the rich. Now, what does this have to do with us? These statements about wealthy people. Well, consider this question. Think about this. What do you call someone who has no indoor plumbing, who has no access to electricity, who can't pay for any kind of transportation like cars or buses or planes, who has few pieces of clothing, who's someone who's never seen the inside of a supermarket, um, someone has no access to what we call a medical doctor. We call that person desperately poor, right? You might say that abject poverty. What well, describes precisely the circumstances of this rich young ruler. Anyone who was fabulously wealthy in Jesus' day. What we would call abject poverty. So that's, uh, the, such is the, the vast difference in affluence between even lower and middle classes today and what was fabulous wealth in Jesus' day. What Jesus is referring to as someone who's rich, so wealthy that they can't understand the kingdom of God. Um, our definition of the rich is, is uh, of course, relative. It's driven by celebrity and, and media and so on. But we understand you and I are, are fabulously rich. We live in luxury that's unimaginable to almost all of human history. Relative to what Jesus is talking about. So we can't afford to read Jesus' teaching on wealth and think, and, and think yeah, it must be harder for those wealthy people. You know, to, to really get what Jesus is saying. We can't afford to read Jesus' warnings about wealth and not see ourselves 100. Uh, percent I mean, astronomically beyond what kind of wealth that Jesus had in mind. Uh, see ourselves in that application, uh, in that way. I think this story is meant as a contrast to the the one that we read last week, the the one of the little children, where the little children's. Ignorance, and, and even babies, right? Ignorance and, and their weakness and their youth and their dependence were not a barrier to the kingdom to them. Like the disciples maybe be supposed. Jesus welcomed them and said, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And yet for this this man, for all that he's accomplished, and all of his good intentions perhaps, his wealth is a massive barrier to So likewise, your wealth and my wealth, it's potentially that. It, it, it's not inherently wrong at all. It can be understood as a great and gracious gift from God. But, but your income, your, your HVAC, your uh, clothes, your luxurious high-tech cars, your screens, your health care, your vacations, your gym memberships, your grocery stores, your Walmarts and Amazons, your instant coffee makers, your insurance policies and 401ks and 403bs and Roth IRAs—it's all normal to us, right? And again, that's a blessing. And then it can certainly be like a, like an invisible chain around your ankles, keeping you from really fully stepping into the kingdom of God, understanding, or like a like a fog that keeps you from really seeing what Jesus is talking about. So that's what he's warning. If Jesus says there was a barrier, then two thousand years ago what to us is that abject poverty? How much of a barrier could it be to us today to feel our need? Let me challenge you with a couple of questions. Do you believe Jesus' warnings you? Do you believe how he puts this warning in Luke chapter 14? He says, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, what's his conclusion Will find it to be a little more difficult. No, he says, cannot be my disciple. And the point of that passage, the point of this passage, is not—it's it, not normative in, in all of its details uh, for, for all Christians everywhere. This was a unique interaction between Jesus and this man. Um, it's not literally normative, but it is principally normative. The principle Jesus is teaching that all that you have must be submitted to and secondary to and used for Christ and his kingdom. Your love and devotion to him. One one commentator writes this, The call to follow Jesus does not constitute an additional obligation in life, but rather judges, replaces, and subordinates all obligations, all allegiance, and all we have to the one who says, follow me. You you who cannot obey God's law, who um, cannot fulfill the law of love, who deserve the punishment of a traitor and a rebel, Jesus has done everything for you. He's taken your punishment. He offers you to share in his glory and his family, to give you riches and peace and happiness forever. I certainly understand a, a brother or a friend or especially a God who would do that. For you is worthy of all your love and devotion. Secondly, I want to challenge us with the question: Is is your desire for Jesus Himself to be with Him, to follow Him, to know Him? That's a major thing that this rich ruler was missing. If you're in the church or come to worship or call yourself a Christian for any reason above that, you have the same barrier as this rich ruler. If, if you're here or you identify with Christ because it's familiar, or because it's a place for friendships, or it lends itself to a healthy lifestyle or teaches you good morals, it, it, it may do all those things secondarily, i sure, but they fall woefully short of what ought to be understanding of the Christian life, Christ's church, worship, that is to bring you to Jesus. To love and enjoy Jesus, to become like him, to know him. That's that's the goal. Secondly, on your outline, Jesus here calls for total and humble dependence. Again, in responding to this man, Jesus confronts him with the holiness of God, with with the commands of God, and we see the man's self-confidence. Again, verse 20, teacher, I've kept all these things, I've, I've done all that. And you saw self It's really with there from the beginning when he came to Jesus in verse 17 and he said, what what one thing must I do? Right? Whatever whatever it was whatever task Jesus was going to give and whatever group he was going to have to go through he was confident that he could do it. He's, he's done all God's commandments. And you can add that to his resume no problem. He sounds somewhat like the Pharisee praying in the tumble. Right? Or like Paul in Philippians 3, when Paul describes what he, what he used to be, where his, his confidence used to be, his, his resume, all the things that he'd done, all the things that he was.
1: The rich iron ruler
0: is really the point of God's law, which is to point us to God, not only his, his holiness, but, but his mercy. Because the law of God first shows us how far we fall short. Right? How, how offensive we are to God. Especially if we understand the spirit of the law. Right? The heart of the law, that it's about love in everything that we do. Pure and selfless love for God and for others. And this rich young ruler certainly has a wrong understanding about whether he can actually keep all of God's law outwardly. None of us can do that, even. But Jesus tests him on that heart of the law, tests his heart here. Will he sell everything that he has? If his creator and Lord asked him to. Um, Out of love for others and devotion to God, would he sell the has? and Jesus? And Jesus is driving him to see that he actually has failed utterly in trying to keep God's law and be a good person and earn God's favor. He's not, he's, he's not doing love. He wouldn't devote his life to Christ if he asked. And I think it's worth noting, lest we beat up on the rich young ruler too much. Um, it doesn't seem that he's a total hypocrite, uh, or completely arrogant. He's, he's not like many people Jesus interacts with. Uh, he's wrong in his understanding. Certainly he has tried to doing those things, but Jesus doesn't challenge his assertion that he has tried in some sense to keep God's law that he cares about. Life. Jesus doesn't challenge his desire for eternal life or his sincerity in coming to Jesus. Uh, and, and interestingly, verse 21, there's only one person in the whole gospel that we're told explicitly that Jesus loved. And it's this means We can see Jesus' love demonstrated for many people, but uh, this is the only time it's said that explicitly that might challenge maybe some of our, challenge us to think about our, our um, articulations of the doctrines of grace, given that this man seems to reject Jesus. Uh, but but this man that dislikes those things doesn't see himself as a desperate sinner against the Holy God in need of redemption that he can't do, that he can't earn. Uh, he doesn't seem to believe Jeremiah 17, verse 19, that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Well, that, that idea uh, has been, always, and, and still is, offensive to sinful people. And, and it's why we need the, the free gospel, the free grace of God, but the freeness of God's grace, uh, because of our desperate condition is an offense to right? Maybe even subtly an offense to us at times. We always want, we, we all want to believe that we're good enough. Right? That, that we, in some sense, that we contribute something to God's love and acceptance of us. And we see something of that the Richard Ruler's response again verse twenty two. He was saddened. That's actually a it's a particularly strong word in Greek that's translated sometimes shocked or appalled. He was appalled and shocked at Jesus' request of it. Over and over again, people are shocked or offended at Jesus' call to humility. That that's what discipleship would be about. That it's not a call to victory. Of happiness and, and all this that he did. People are shocked and offended at the idea of suffering. The idea that Jesus would suffer and not. Jesus The, the rich our ruler came to Jesus so confident and yet as soon as he was called to count the cost as soon as he was called out of the comfort of all that he, he had to suffer he was broken and unwilling and walked away. We see maybe a similar reaction from the disciples in verse 24, after this scene with the rich young ruler, said the disciples were amazed at his words. Mark's telling us the disciples had something of the same response to what Jesus had had just said to the rich young ruler. Um, And then in verse 26, uh, they were even more astonished after what Jesus said about the rich and said, then who can be saved? I think what the disciples are saying basically is Jesus, that's that's not fair. If if that's how hard it is, that that's not fair because it's not even possible. You're taking away our ability, our accomplishments, our contributions, the things that we've done and things we've sacrificed. That doesn't seem fair. If you're like me, you can follow into similar thinking about God's love and His grace. I trust it. All of us here this morning know and confess that salvation is all of grace. But perhaps at times we have a works righteousness mindset that that asks questions like, What do I need to do? How do I need to be better to work myself into God's favor more? Or the things, you know, boy, I really blew it yesterday when I said that or responded that way or gave in to that temptation. I need to wait a little while before I have my devotion to pray. which just seem hypocritical to you know, act religious so soon after I behaved like that. Um, if you're like me, again, even if you understand we can't be good enough to please God in all the ways that this is formulated, you um, picture us earning points with God, or losing points with God, this sort of constant struggle where we're up and down in God's favor, in and out of his love for us. God's never quite pleased. That's not how it works. Jesus' whole point here is verse 27, with people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. We we really don't see or understand the grace of God until we come to know how desperately hopeless we are, and so we come to the point the disciples come to here and come to through repeatedly throughout the Gospels before they really get it. Who then can be saved? I I can do nothing. I contribute nothing. This is what the rich young ruler should have seen. He needed to see this deficiency, this need. It's what you and I need to see, to see who Jesus really is. What what discipleship really is. Some people want to talk about grace without talking about sin or depravity, um, as if that sort of enhances our understanding of grace. It's quite the opposite. What you and I need to see is that you are worthy of the love of God. You're worthy to be sons and daughters of God. But not because of anything you are. Or anything that you've done. Anything in you. But rather because Jesus is good at Because of what he has done. Because God loves you in him. You're united to him. And that's what drives you to love and devotion and obedience and dependence. Knowing that he's already done everything for you. It loves you unconditionally. It's not conditioned on, on who you are or how you're doing. That's why we need to keep the law of God in front of us, not only as a guide for life and a way to love God and others, it is that, but to remind us of our need for a saving, our need for grace. That's why we need to talk about sin, be reminded of our again, to to imagine that to emphasize grace, we don't talk about law. Is to, is to utterly shrink the grace of God and not understand it at all. To so shrink it down to our side. Then this relates to this this man's huge barrier in seeing his need. Uh, outwardly, that that barrier was his wealth. Uh, he was comfortable. He had power. Music, Maybe your life is so full of stuff and comfort and amusement that you lose sight of your desperate poverty, your need for Jesus and his grace. I know that's true of I me mean, at times, major barriers distractions for me have included my relative health in my life. I have a much health, struggle and pain that would readily remind me of my need Weakness or sports and success as as distractors or or comforts away from God's grace. How much time do you spend working on your own comfort? Or health or fitness or diet? Or how much time do you spend amusing or distracting yourself with screens versus time you spend in God's Word? Being reminded of His grace and your need. expressing your need in prayer. Let's just look briefly at the last interaction here with the disciples. Verse 28, Peter, as he often does, speaks up and says, Behold, he said, look, Jesus, we have left everything in followed of you. You see, Peter's logic is his point. Why Why he said this here at this point. He's He's saying, Jesus, you're talking about how impossible it is to be to get into the kingdom of God, it is, that it's all the work of God and His grace. Does this mean that all we've done, Jesus, He's not claiming perfection or anything like that, but all that we've done, leaving family, leaving our livelihoods, living in poverty, calling you, is that meaningless? If, if eternal life and salvation and relationship with God is is only possible by the work and the grace of God. Are all of our sacrifices, all of our efforts, Jesus, are they are they meaningless? And Jesus' answer is, is really a resounding no. If Peter is asking, does this all count for anything? Jesus says, Absolutely. They don't contribute to earning God's love or earning eternal life, but but the sacrifices that you've made, the obedience you've offered, are eternally meaningful. Allegiance to Jesus, indeed, cost us now. Right? It can cost, uh, certainly it costs in terms of setting aside our sin. It costs us pleasure in this life. It might cost relationships. It might cost financially or socially or other things. But Jesus acknowledges what his disciples have given up. And not only do they gain God himself and Jesus, but he says reward many times greater than whatever they could possibly give up in this life. They gain. And it's hard for us not to focus on what we we give up right, when we sacrifice. But our focus needs to be on the reality of what we gain in Christ. Otherwise it would be like a a uh, man at his wedding was depressed on his wedding day, lamenting what what he's giving up, or how his relationships are changing now, or how he's restricted now, and, rather than delighting in what he gains and in, in the incredible gifts of marriage in his life himself. So Jesus says to his disciples, he reassures them, verse 3: There's gain of these things that you've given up. Even now, in the present age, in the church, the church family, God's family. But even more, with eternal life, he says, in the age to come. Again, I, just, I want to close by bringing this back to the beginning of the point that this is not without love for Jesus himself. That's what the rich ruler was missing. Even if he had a genuine desire for eternal life, to follow God's law, if we aim directly for the reward, for the benefit, as the rich, ruler was doing, just tell me what I need to do so I can grab hold of eternal life. If we aim directly for it, we'll, we'll miss it. We'll strive on our own strength, our own ability, um, our own worthiness. Uh, that reward comes only through Jesus, through His worthiness, through dependence on Him, following and loving Him, our devotion to Him. Receiving that reward is a merciful gift uh, from Him to undeserving sinners. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we give thanks to you again this morning for uh, revealing yourself to us in your word, for not leaving us in darkness, for giving us hearts to understand, uh, to embrace the Lord Jesus. We confess that that's not because of anything in us or any inclination um, in us, but you've given us that inclination. You've changed our hearts. We pray that you would give us what this man, at least so far as we know in this account, what you lacked: um, a desire for Jesus himself, and not just for his benefits. I pray that would will be true as we gather for worship, as we encourage each other, as we live all of our lives. Lord, make us mindful of barriers that we have, perhaps even our wealth and comfort to really understanding discipleship and devotion to Christ. Uh, We pray all this in his name.